Thank you, Leona. This morning, we are wrapping up our four-week series that we have been in on Christian foundations. In that time, we've covered the Apostles' Creed, we've covered the Ten Commandments, baptism and communion, and today we're wrapping it all up by looking at the Lord's Prayer as well as confession, which relates to prayer. Uh, these are six practices that are foundational for the Christian life, and they are foundational because of their focus. Their emphasis, each and every one of them, is on God, particularly as he comes to us in Jesus Christ, and their focus is on how we relate to one another. And that is what the Christian faith is all about. God, particularly as he has revealed himself in Christ, and what that means for us in our relationship with God and one another. In the creed, we confess that we believe collectively. In baptism, we are baptized into the community. A communion is a union that is our common union, our coming together because of Christ. The commandments that we talked about last week teach us how to love one another. In the same way, when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray, our Father, not my Father. And all of this reflects the very character of God. The very character of God is a community God. He is a God who is three persons in one essence, one being. God the Father, triune. And so all of the teachings of who God is come right out of his character. A God of community, a God of unity in diversity. And all of this pushes against the self-help rhetoric that often poses as Christianity today. And yet has very little impact in making a difference in our life. As Randy Reese, uh, who passed away a few years back, a professor of mine, uh, back when I was in seminary, and pointed me to a number of the classic Christian teachers, one of the reasons why I so often go back to these classic Christian teachers, these saints myself, is because of how countercultural they are. And as Randy Reese explained to us in one of our classes and wrote in one of his books, he said this, he said, much spiritual self-help today fails because the focus remains exclusively on the self. How can I grow? How can I experience God more fully? How can I access the power of the Holy Spirit? How can I develop my faith? Randy Reese says, all of these are limited questions that lead to disappointment because they don't focus on God. The classic spiritual teachers, he says, recount that the spiritual growth always begins with awareness and the character and the nature of God. The more we focus on God and his character, the more we focus on what it means to be a believer in regards to our one anotherness, these questions of self, how do I, how do I, they just end up becoming not needed. They are addressed by focusing on God and focusing on others. And so what the foundational 
creeds and what the foundational prayer of the Lord's Prayer, the commandments, what they continually bring us back to is right focus. Right focus being God and one another. Because when it comes to prayer, I realized a number of years ago that I'm pretty bad at it. All of my prayers were pretty much the same. If I would do an assessment of them, they all sounded something like, Lord, bless my family, keep them safe, help John to quit messing up, help me to quit messing up, give me a good time at work today, and help everyone to love you. Amen. And that's pretty much my prayer. And it was funny because I remember you'd, you'd talk about, oh, you know those liturgical churches? I mean, their prayers, they're just so repetitive. And then I started to look at my personal prayers and said, oh, man, I think my personal prayers are almost more repetitive than the liturgy. I mean, how many times can you keep praying that day after day after day? I'm just not that imaginative. And when I'm honest with myself, I'm also kind of self-centered. And I think this is what happens if we're honest with ourselves when it comes to prayer. And we all end up having this struggle, which is why after a while, a lot of us just quit. That's when a pastor and author by the name of Eugene Peterson came to my aid and pointed me to the prayers of others. Pointed me to the prayers of others as tools to help us pray. Even when I prayed the Lord's Prayer today and the other things that I prayed in conjunction with it, this was a prayer of William Barclay. And when you slow down and you read and you pray alongside the prayers of others, it actually expands our prayer life. And so I've learned to pray alongside of God's people. And we also have tools right in the Bible itself that can help us. The book of Psalms has always been used as a prayer book for the church. There's 150 prayers right there that we can pray alongside of. And then there's the Lord's Prayer. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus didn't say, just go to a quiet place somewhere, close your eyes and say whatever comes into your head. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus gave them words. Jesus gave them content. Jesus gave them a guide. Jesus said, when you pray, do something like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food that we need and forgive us of our sins just as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Now, as I've said with all these other foundational series uh, sermons, if you want a more detailed study on the Lord's Prayer, again, after the service today, you can go to the library. I wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer called Walking on Your Knees. Uh, like I said, I, I kind of wrote this trilogy on these foundational teachings uh, one on the Creed, one on the Ten Commandments, and one on the Lord's Prayer. And so this is the one on the Lord's Prayer. You can pick that up after the service. Because this morning is going to be just a one-off on the Lord's Prayer. So that will give you going through the whole prayer. And because it's a one-off, and because I want to combine confession with this sermon, I'm going to, for this sermon, look at one stanza of the Lord's Prayer and have our focus be on that one. And that's the stanza of the prayer that says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
because one of these foundations of the Christian faith is not only the Lord's Prayer, but is confession and regular confession. According to the religious leaders in Jesus' day, it was recommended that you not forgive someone more than three times. However, when Jesus was asked by one of his disciples on this theological question that people were debating about, uh, Peter came to Jesus and asked him that very question. He said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And then Peter throws out seven times. I mean, Peter was being generous. The teaching of the day, uh, the common thinking was three times, like baseball. Maybe this is where the baseball three strikes and you're out came from. After three forgivenesses, you're done. But Peter said, what about if we played baseball where you could strike, you have seven swings at it before you strike out? He was being extremely generous, suggesting a forgiveness level that more than doubles what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were saying. But Jesus replied to Peter and said, No, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Not double, plus one, Peter, but more than 25 times what the teachers are suggesting, and in fact, 11 times more than what Peter suggested. Now, some translations actually have Jesus say to Peter, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, that's 490 times. More than 163 times what the teachers were saying, and more than 70 times what Peter was offering. Now, how do you even keep track of that? 490 times? How do you even tick that off every single time? You know, you're at 163. I mean, baseball is long as it is. I don't know how people can sit through an entire baseball game with only three strikes and you're out. Could you imagine if every single time a player got up to bat, they had 490 swings before they were out? It would be ridiculously long. But this is exactly Jesus' point. Jesus is not speaking literally. Jesus is not speaking mathematically. Jesus is not telling people to pull out their, their phones or their calculators and to keep a running tally of this. Jesus is speaking, as he often does, in his brilliant way of making things memorable. See, three times, or even Peter's suggested seven times, is measurable. You actually could tick that off. You could remember, you know, you're at number five, you're at number six. These are numbers you can check off on a list. But the idea of checking off how many times you've offered forgiveness to someone seems to go against the whole concept of forgiveness. And so what Jesus is doing is not giving an actual number. Jesus is just throwing out a ridiculous number to basically say, you can't check this off. You can't measure this. How often should you forgive someone? Jesus drives this home by the way he usually does, 
by not only saying this and stretching language and using it in very memorable ways, but also by telling a story. And so after he has this encounter with Peter, and he gives this number of 70 times 7 to make sure that Peter understands that this is not just a number, but a whole way of life, he then from there moves on and tells this story that you're going to watch. got an appointment with Mr. Wood. I have your six o'clock here, Mr. Wood. Mr. Wood will see you now. Thank you. Take a seat, Mr. Martell. Do you know why you're here? Yes, sir. I've been studying your accounts for the last two years, and uh, you have managed to collect an overwhelming amount of debt, $2.3 billion, and not a single effort has been made to make payment. I've contacted the company lawyer. The trial will take place in three weeks, and you have until then to make payment in full. But, sir, how can I ever come up with that much money? Failure to repay the debt will result in a lifetime prison sentence, and the debt will be passed on to your immediate family. My family has nothing to do with this. Your mistakes affect more than just yourself. Please, sir, be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. Tony, you can never repay that debt. That's why I've decided to cancel it in full. that. No, but go and forgive as you've been forgiven. Work yourself too hard, Adam. You know me, sir. I never do. <laughs> Tony? You haven't paid rent, Adam. It's been over a month. I left you a note the other day explaining my situation. <sighs> Don't give me that excuse. Pay back what you owe me, every last penny. I get paid next week. Please, be patient with me. I'll pay back everything I owe. That's not good enough. Here's your eviction notice. You must pack your things and leave by tomorrow morning.
Did Adam take leave? Well, not exactly. He called to report he'd been evicted. Why didn't he show up for work? I'm not sure. All I know is that he missed his payments and Tony Martell told him to be out of the company apartment by morning. Send Tony in when he gets here. Morning, sir. I canceled all of that debt of yours. $2.3 billion. But you've got the nerve to evict a man from his apartment for not paying his rent for one month? I can explain. I've decided to reinstate all of your debt. Every last penny. Sometimes when we've heard Jesus' stories a lot through our growing up in the church, they lose their sting. I remember telling this story to a bunch of uh, children at an elementary school that had not heard this story before. And I got the, the joy of seeing the impact of how some of these stories would have struck the first listeners. Because as I was getting to the end of this story, as Jesus told it, this little girl jumped up and she yelled out, that guy's a jerk! How could he do that after he was forgiven all that money? She was just enraged. She was so upset. And I looked at the little girl and I said, exactly. That's the point of the story. Exactly. She got it. She got it. This is why when the Lord's Prayer teaches us to confess our sins, it is immediately followed by a prayer asking for the forgiveness of other people's sins. We pray, forgive us our sins, just as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. In fact, the petition even indicates that we've already done this before we've even come to God and asked for forgiveness, which is quite interesting. It, the words say, forgive us our sins just as we have forgiven it's almost like before you even come to God and say, Lord, forgive me for this, make sure you have forgiven other people. Forgiveness is so deeply a part of the Christian faith that it is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that right after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus continues to give commentary on. He gives the Lord's Prayer and says, this is how when you come to God, you should pray. And then after he gives the Lord's Prayer, he then says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you of your sins. I, that is a profoundly strong statement. I mean, it's what the story tells. This line of Jesus here has always put fear in my life as a Christian. I mean, it almost sounds like salvation is contingent on my forgiving other people who have harmed me. And in a sense, that's exactly what Jesus says. If you have truly received God's forgiveness, if it is something that you have really embraced, you will forgive other people. If you do not do that, it reveals a condition of your heart that has not understood the gospel message. And it has been something that has, has 
brought that fear within me that almost forces me to say, I have to keep short accounts with people. I have to make sure that I go through life continually letting things go and forgiving those who have sinned against me. Because God has done that for me, I need to do that for one another. So Jesus is teaching us two important aspects of prayer as it relates to confession with this line. He says that we are to pray and ask God to forgive our sins. This is something we need to do regularly. As we saw with last week with the commandments, Paul said in Romans, all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard. And therefore, when we pray, forgive us our sins, we are identifying with that all. All have sinned. Not just those people out there, and there's a few exceptions. All have sinned. Even the saints of the past sinned. All have sinned. And when we say, Lord, forgive us of our sins, we are saying, I am part of that all. I am part of Adam's race that, like him and Eve, has rebelled against you. Even though G.K. Chesterton said that original sin is the most proven of all Christian doctrines, the average person, if you ask them, will say that they think they're still good enough to get into heaven. But Christians know better. Christians know that all have sinned. And that includes themselves. Christians pray like this. Christians say, Lord, it's a beautiful day. I have not cursed. I have not unnecessarily argued with anyone. I have not yelled at my kids. I have not grumbled or complained or gossiped. Lord, it is a beautiful day. But I'm about to get out of bed. And from here on in, I'm going to need all the help I can get. Amen. Christians know that that's true about them. No one is righteous, not even one. And that is why we have to come before God regularly. Because the moment I think that I have beaten this sin thing, I recognize that I'm now proud about that. And I have to start right back from the beginning again. G.K. Chesterton was also correct when he was asked, what's wrong with this world? And he said, I am. I am. I'm a sinner. And what may seem self-depreciating is actually quite freeing. It's being honest with yourself. And it's being honest with God. It's what Christians call confession. And confession is freeing. It's a sign of maturity to be able to acknowledge your mistakes. To be able to take responsibility for those things that you've done wrong. It's to admit, as they do in AA, that I'm powerless over my situation. And that I need a power higher than myself to be able to free me. Without recognizing that I am powerless. As long as I think that I can still beat this. I'm going to fall down again and again and again and get deeper and deeper into the darkness and the addictions. So to pray, forgive us our sins, is to admit that we're sinful. 
to admit that we're powerless. To ask for forgiveness is to humble ourselves before God. And when we humble ourselves before God, we can pray along with the psalmist, who in Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Listen to what he says. Even the physical pressure of keeping sin bound inside. The psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. Can't we all relate? We all know what guilt feels like. It actually has a physical weight that depresses us. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and then you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's freedom in confession because we have a God who forgives. And we must remember that when we pray and we bring our confession towards God, we pray not only and confess our sins as individuals, but we pray, Lord, forgive our sins as community. Because we do sin as well, as community. We sin as churches, as families, as nations, as the world. And we have been contaminated by those sins and are included in them. And so we pray and confess the sins of the community as well. When Nehemiah and Isaiah in the Old Testament uh, confessed on behalf of the sins of the people, they identified themselves with the people. They didn't say, Lord, forgive those people over there for those things that they've done. But no, when Nehemiah prayed on behalf of the people of Israel, the people of Judah who had been put into exile because of all their sins. And, and though Nehemiah was a faithful follower of God, we read that when Nehemiah came before God, he said, I confess the sins, we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. Notice how, how Nehemiah identifies with the people. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Lord, I confess the sins we Israelites did. Isaiah said the same thing. Isaiah, when the Lord encountered him, said, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Yes, I live among a people of unclean lips, but I too have unclean lips. Nehemiah and Isaiah prayed and confessed their sins to God, but they also confessed the sins of the people to God. The second thing that this petition of the Lord's Prayer teaches us is what is the extension of this is that because we can confess our sins before God, and because God does forgive us, therefore that now extends to us forgiving others. We are to pray and ask for God's empowerment to forgive those who sin against us. 
Because when we embrace, when we understand forgiveness, by the story that Jesus told, the parable that we just watched, obviously the guy that was forgiven $2.3 billion didn't get it. He didn't really understand what had happened to him. Because if he understood the depth of what happened to him, the graciousness of how he'd want others to be able to experience what he experienced would be generously given. When you've embraced and understood the extent of God's forgiveness towards you because of what Jesus did on the cross, this extends to what you want to show to other people. As C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. See, we really need to recognize that we are sinners. If we are going to be able to forgive others. The two cartoon characters you see up on the screen behind me there are Plucky Duck and Hampton Pig. They're part of a cartoon series called The Tiny Tunes. I used to watch these when I was younger on Saturday mornings. And I remember one particular episode that for me illustrated this whole forgiveness thing so well. There was an episode where, where Plucky Duck and Hampton Pig got into a fight about something very minor. And as fights often do, it got worse and worse, and they got more and more stuck in their sides. And finally, as it happens in cartoons, the whole scene got switched to a boxing ring. And Plucky Duck is sitting in one corner, and he has a trainer that's massaging his back, and he's getting massaged, and he's getting coached by different people, and he's got all these people around him. And then there in the other corner sits Hampton Pig, and he's just all by himself, just slumped over on his chair. Then before the bell rings to start the match, uh, Plucky takes an air hose and sticks it down his throat and starts pumping this air hose up, and he becomes ten times the size that he is. He just keeps like a balloon. All these muscles start bulging all over him. Then the bell rings. Plucky comes to the middle of the ring, this huge monster of a duck, and Hampton kind of comes out too. Plucky leans down nose to nose or beak to nose, I guess you'd call it, down at Hampton Pig, and he's just about with his humongous fist now. That's about three times the size of Hampton. He's just about to smash Hampton into to the ground when Hampton in this soft little squeaky voice says to Plucky, Plucky, I'm sorry. And as soon as he says, I'm sorry, suddenly, like a balloon that hasn't been tied properly, Plucky, with all that air in him, just goes <laughs> through the whole place and ends up just a green pile of goo in the middle with a beak that says, hey, that's not fair. You can't apologize. I'm still mad at you. And that's how the episode ends. I mean, to me, it's just this perfect illustration of, def of the deflating power of forgiveness. All ready to fight, and this simple apology just deflates the whole situation. In fact, it it's even almost annoying. No, I want to fight. But how do you fight when somebody just says, I'm sorry? It's a powerful illustration. 
On April 28, 1999, a 14-year-old student walked into W.R. Myers High School in Tabor, Alberta, and opened fire with a rifle and killed 17-year-old Jason Lang. And what followed was Jason's father, Reverend Dale Lang, publicly forgiving the boy who shot his son. And as other stories that we've heard about like this have happened, whenever it does, it just shocks everybody. People even debate whether that's the right thing to do on the radio and that. Like, that just seems so insurmountable for people. People were so astonished at this that it even opened up opportunities for Reverend Lang to speak in public schools all over the country about the healing power of forgiveness. There are many stories like this, and whenever they happen, they show the world a power that is beyond human power, the power of forgiveness. A number of men in the church here at Bethany are on Wednesday nights studying a book of theology with me, and the chapter that we're studying this week is on evil. And Daniel Migliori, the writer of this book, on the chapter in evil says this close to the end, without God's forgiveness of our sins and our forgiveness of the sins of others against us, no hope of real transformation of life is possible. That's a strong statement. Why are some of us stuck? Why are some of us trapped in a certain development in our spiritual life with God? Why do some of us not seem to be close to God or being able to get closer to God? I would venture to say that a large part of it for many of us is this issue right here. No transformation is possible in the Christian life when we're not open to God's forgiveness and we're unable to extend forgiveness to others. We began this four-week foundation series with the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed gives us that very bare-bone, most essential beliefs of the Christian. It's the core. And it's interesting, of all the things that could be said in there, when you reduce it down to the most bare essential, something that can be said in less than a minute, one of those statements in the Apostles' Creed is, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. That's how foundational forgiveness is. It's in the creed. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And as we end our four-week series today on Christian foundations with the, Lord prayer, with the Lord's Prayer, <clears throat> we see the exact same thing. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, and so we come before God and we pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Why? Because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is what Jesus is all about. What do you need to ask God for forgiveness for? And who is it that you need to extend grace and forgiveness to? If for nothing else, you can move forward and answer those two questions. This whole series on Christian foundations will be worth it. It's two of the most important questions you can ask. Lord, 
What do I need to confess before you? What do I need to get right in my relationship with you? And who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to release? Without that, there's no moving forward in the Christian faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Lord, forgive us for wickedness, sin and greed, hate, envy, murder, fighting, deception, malicious behavior and gossip. Forgive us for being backstabbers, haters of you, insolent, proud, and boastful. Forgive us for inventing new ways of sinning and disobeying our parents. Forgive us for breaking our promises and for being heartless and unforgiving and encouraging others, either passively or actively, to engage in the same kinds of behavior. Thank you for showing your great love for us by sending Christ to die for us even while we were still sinners. Thank you for the new life you have given us in Christ. We are not the same anymore. The old life is gone and a new life has become. Empower us to forgive those who have sinned against us. May we not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. May we live by your words. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, to live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so may we not overcome evil with evil, but may we overcome evil with good. Amen.